I had so many people tell me there's no way you could fix this company and no way you could survive. I'm just one of those people that the more people tell me I can't, I do. What is up, futurists? It's Tuesday, October 27th. Your host, Michael Zakond here, founder of Our Future. We are a media startup for curious young leaders who want to go beyond business news with exclusive industry insights and career advice. We just launched the referral program for the Our Future newsletter. If you refer just two emails to our newsletter, if you get two people to sign up, you're getting an invite to our VIP speaker series where you will get to meet with some of the legendary guests we have featured on Our Future, the first being Chuck Muth, Chief Growth Officer of Beyond Meat. We're gonna have a select group of listeners who refer our newsletter, come and hang out with Chuck and ask questions about the future of plant-based. So subscribe to our newsletter at ourfuturehq.com as always. And before we kick things off, just wanna give a shout out to my dad, Shiv Sakhand, for his 53rd birthday. If you wanna hear from my dad, I featured him in episode two of this podcast way back in May to interview him about founding Draco Motors. It's an electric supercar company which has built the Draco GTE. Check it out on Instagram at Draco Motors. So happy birthday, dad. I hope you're listening today because it is an absolute honor every time you listen. My next guest is David Brandon, who leads a career at the highest level of corporate America. I'm talking the upper echelon. I'm talking board member at 10 different companies. He is the former CEO of Velasquez Communications, Domino's Pizza, and Toys R Us. He also served as my school's athletic director at the University of Michigan, Go Blue, from 2010 to 2014. Saying David is retired is honestly a massive understatement. He is currently the chairman of the board at Domino's Pizza and serves on the board of other companies like PetSmart, Herman Miller, Meyer, Burger King, and countless others. Just read off this guy's LinkedIn. It's a pretty legendary list. Without further ado, my interview with David Brandon. The way I start off all my interviews with founders, executives, CEOs, when you were 20, so you were back in Michigan, like I am today, what did you see for yourself? What was the future in your eyes? Yes, when I was 20 years old at the University of Michigan, I was playing football. I was on a football scholarship. I, I was enrolled in the School of Education, and my passion was to become a teacher and a coach, and probably in a reverse order. I was really interested in being a coach. And in those days, in order to be a coach, you really needed to be a teacher. So those were my two passions, and that was what I had carved out for my life's plan. The biggest influences on me growing up in a small town in Michigan, uh, being raised by two parents who never went to college. Uh, and, and I'm not sure anybody in our extended family had ever gone to college. Um, my role models were my coaches in high school and teachers in high school. And so I just thought that was a very noble undertaking and what I wanted to do as a career. Another Michigan grad I interviewed, Kevin O'Connor, the founder of DoubleClick, the huge advertising giant. He said that his MBA came from being a wrestling coach and working with his, you know, his team members, how to go after something, how to work together, how to win big, that mentality. So I definitely see the tie in there to, to business. And fast forward, 1999, Thomas Monaghan is also a graduate of the University of Michigan decided to sell Domino's to Bain Capital. And I believe he did it to start a university. So that goes back 
to the education stuff we were talking about earlier, how that is such an impactful place to look into. And you were tapped to be the CEO of Domino's Pizza, a global brand that commands such a iconic perch in the public consciousness. What was your energy going into that job? Well, I had been 20 years at Velasquez and I'd been the CEO for the last 11 and uh, I was really ready for whatever was next. I actually got a call from uh, Mitt Romney, who uh, at the time was still a principal player at Bain Capital. And frankly, I met with the Bain Capital team and hit it off with them immediately. They wanted me to be the CEO of this enterprise. And I remember my first day was spent doing media interviews because this was a very high profile transaction for a lot of reasons. And uh, the next day, kind of above the fold in the Wall Street Journal, the headline was Bain Capital chooses industry outsider. And the article went on to explain that I had no experience in the pizza category, no experience in quick service restaurants, no experience in a franchise operation no global experience. And basically the article kind of between the lines said that Bain Capital had lost their mind hiring a guy to come in and run this big investment. So I laminated that article and I put it on my desk. And for the first two years I was in that job, that was the first thing I saw every day when I went into my office, being a former athlete and a very competitive guy and reading this clown talk about how unqualified I was for this job uh, that became a big motivating factor for me to make sure that I went in there with a lot of energy and uh, with a lot of commitment. Domino's Pizza, you took it public five years after you took on the job in 1999, 2004, $14 a share. The company now commands nearly $400 a share, $14 to $400. The company has killed it during this global pandemic, providing food to millions of people. The digital innovations that you put in place were way ahead of their time in terms of ordering, and they live on. The DNA of those decisions you made lives on to today in the business, and you're still at the company as chairman of the board. What is the most unusual thing about the business of pizza that we just don't think about? And maybe it's something you learned right away when you came in as an outsider. I can't remember what our last uh, publicly announced number was, but let's let's say we operate between 17,000 and 18,000 stores in 90 countries around the world. And uh, we, own, we only own about 500 of those. Uh, the rest of them are all franchised. And what that means is that the business model is really driven by the entrepreneurial spirit of people who want to own and operate their own business. Now, only a certain number of people have what I call the inventor's gene, where they can kind of look into the sky and say, I'm going to invent something that doesn't exist. And I have great admiration for those people. But there's a lot of entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss. They want to be a self-starter. They really want to own and operate their own operation, but, they, but they, they have trouble inventing something that somebody hasn't thought of before. Well, that's when franchising really kicks in, because the invention has been made. It's called delivered pizza. The thrill of that business is working with hundreds, if not thousands of entrepreneurs 
who are out there every day working extremely hard to, you know, grow the brand, extend the brand, and win in a very competitive marketplace. There's one individual that was a franchisee that I inherited that started out as a driver in Ann Arbor. He was a pizza driver, fell in love with the business, moved his way up to be an assistant manager or manager. And by the time I got there, which was about 30 years later, um, he owned 165 stores down in the southeastern part of the country and making tens of millions of dollars a year. Um, so I watched so many people kind of, you know, live that story of driving pizzas, you know, making pizzas in a store, becoming assistant manager, and then having this dream of owning their own store. And the next thing you know, they own a large company uh, that's comprised of many, many domino stores. That's, that's an amazing environment to be in. One thing I want to get at is in a super funny and now notorious advertisement. This was after you unveiled subs as a product in Domino's lineup. And Subway got upset about claims you made about their Sandos. So you took the cease and desist letter they sent you and burned it in the oven. Why do you think it's important to be funny and kind of just make fun of the, this business world that we're living in? We launched these oven-baked sandwiches because we have these big pizza ovens and we came up with a way to put an oven-baked sandwich through that was really a great product. And people preferred our oven-baked sandwiches to Subway two to one. So we, we were very successfully launching this platform and, uh, and I got this cease and desist letter and I took it down to the marketing department and I said, this is a harassment kind of a, you know, we're going to fire a shot across their bow to see if they do anything. I, I just thought it was kind of funny. So the next thing <laughs> you know, we were, it was kind of like, you know, we had to do a commercial, you know, we had to do a commercial and we had to oven bake this letter. So just joking about it kind of turned into a, you know, what? why don't we do that? So next thing you know, we brought in a crew and I, um, I oven baked the letter uh, and, and that was filmed and, and put in the commercial. And, you know, we put that thing online and got like 2 million hits. We've always tried to be a little bit edgy, a little bit different, um, do things that are a little bit unconventional because we think it fits with the category. And now it really fits with what our brand stands for. As a kid growing up, it was the most exciting possible thing to get in the car and go to Toys R Us with, with, with my parents. And I feel lucky to have had the opportunity to go do that. Not only the another amazing global brand, you kind of felt the responsibility now of representing like Domino's, but what was the plan? What was the plan on your mind that you thought might be able to, to, to change what was going on? So I was at a stage in my career where I thought, you know what? Uh, I had so many people tell me there's no way you could fix this company and no way you could survive. I'm just one of those people that the more people tell me I can't, I do. And so I, I was on a steep learning curve because it was true. It was a very different business model than the franchise model at Domino's. Uh, we got off to a pretty good start in the first year. We, we actually, you know, exceeded our target. We grew a lot of hard work on the cost side, but we, we kind of got hit with a, a bit of a triple whammy because at that point, Walmart bought jet.com and got very, very active in the in the online business and the toy business. 
a lot of people forget that even though our company was named Toys R Us and we had a lot of Toys R Us stores, we also, 40% of our business was a business called Babies R Us. And that junior juvenile category is one that Amazon and Walmart and Target took on as one of their pillars and to a large degree became a bit of a loss leader category in terms of pricing and margin. So we were a standalone specialty company that was sitting, sitting there with $5 billion of debt competing with the most well-financed, largest retailers in the world. So it got to the point where, you know, we needed to restructure the company. We need to get rid of some of the debt. We need to get rid of some of the stores that we couldn't afford to operate. Uh, everything was highly leveraged. And so we went through the restructuring process, which I had never done. And boy, did I learn a lot. And thankfully, we were able to save our businesses in Europe all but the UK, we were able to save um, virtually all of our businesses in Asia and Canada, um, Australia. I mean, there were a lot of businesses that, that we were able to save. Unfortunately, we were a little bit of a victim of our own success in the US because the value of the real estate, the value of the inventory, the value of the IP in the US made us a very attractive target for kind of these distressed debt traders who kind of were able to come in, buy up enough of the debt to get control of the capital structure. And they very quickly determined that they could make more money melting the company down in the US than taking the risk associated with getting it back on its feet and growing it. And unfortunately, under that scenario, all of the Toys R Us stores in the US were closed. That was pretty devastating for those of us who worked really hard to come up with a plan to keep that brand alive. And uh, I still have hopes today at some point, you know, my grandkids will be able to go into a toy store again, at least one that somewhat resembles the experience we had as kids. But sadly, right now, a toy, a toy store experience for a youngster is, you know, three or four aisles in a, in a Target store or a Walmart store. It's not the experience that you had that you remember so fondly. If it did come back, I think. And I learned a ton. I learned a lot about a side of Wall Street I'd never seen. I'd really never dealt with distressed lenders. I really no, never dealt with people who, you know, for a quarter of a point of interest would put thousands of people out of work. It's interesting how um, it drives public policy over in Europe. Interestingly enough, if a company goes uh, through a restructuring, through a bankruptcy, uh, one of the first creditors in line are the employees. It's like, we're, we're, we're going to make sure that there, if there's a severance plan, you get paid a, a fair severance, uh, that you get some kind of reasonable medical coverage for a period into the future, pensions are protected, all of that. Well, I think the silver lining then is you bringing this new perspective into other companies and brands like you serve on the board of PetSmart and Herman Miller and DTE, you can bring with you in your back pocket all that you've learned and this new kind of stakeholder-focused perspective, which I think is the future of business with you to these new enterprises. So to round things out, Dave, it's been an amazing conversation. The way I always kind of curve the edges is what is your piece of career advice to someone beginning their journey in the business world today? My advice is we're all a product of our own environment and our own experience. And uh, there are two things that I've learned from my experience. One is 
you, you always should have a plan. If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. But you should also have a clear understanding that as you go along that road, um, doors are going to open. And some of the most important decisions you make will be whether you walk through that door or you keep going. Uh, because as you know, as you indicated early on, I, I, you know, I started out wanting to be a teacher and a coach. I get a call from Procter and Gamble. Next thing you know, I'm working for Procter and Gamble. Next thing you know, I get this job at Velasquez. Next thing you know, I'm a CEO. Then all of a sudden, the pizza category, what's that all about? I don't know anything about that. That door opened. Going back and serving my university, that door opened. None of that was part of a plan. The toy category, going in and trying to save the world's largest and greatest toy company. These, these are things you don't plan. These are opportunities that come along the way. I can, I can, we could spend another podcast talking about the things I said no to. But as you go along that journey, you're going to have doors open. And the most important decisions you make will not be how I stubbornly stick to my plan. It will be, you know, gee, should I run through this door because this is not something I planned on, but something that could be really interesting and rewarding, or should I keep moving? Um, and everybody has to manage their career in that way, and that's certainly been my experience. The last thing is I, I have been in meetings. I've made decisions, and I've been in meetings, thousands of them, like who to promote you know, who to put in a job of bigger responsibility, who to hire. And I've yet to have anybody say, you know, this guy or gal is really smart. They're really experienced. You know, they bring a lot to the party, but they just don't work very hard. I think we should promote them or I think we should hire them. Um, in 100% of the cases, one of the integral things that people are held accountable for is their work ethic and their willingness to make the sacrifices necessary to be successful. So it's great to be smart. It's great to have a great education. It's great to have experience. It's great to have those other things, but you also have to have the energy and the commitment and the willingness to sacrifice to get that job versus somebody else who's competing for it. And it's who's gonna, who's gonna be willing to work the hardest. That was the way it was in athletics. That's the way it is in business. And I think to a large degree, it's the way it is in life. Ladies and gentlemen, that was David Brandon, a complete business powerhouse, has had an incredible career and continues to serve at the highest level of corporate America, telling us some incredible stories and providing some stellar advice. Be with you guys again on Thursday. Thank you for pod with me and always stay frosty.